Good morning, Terra Nova. And happy Easter. Yes, he is risen. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Now after the Sabbath, toward the end of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like a dead man. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, excuse me, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders taking counsel, they gave a su sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, my name is Tori Arneson, and I'm one of the pastors here at Terra Nova Church. If I haven't met you, if I haven't met you, feel free, come say hi to myself, my wife, Anna, over here afterwards. We love to meet you. Um, and we hope that you feel welcomed and that you're excited to hear about our Lord, our risen Lord. So I'm going to start with a hypothetical scenario for you. I want you to imagine that there was a rocket ship going out to Mars, and there was an open seat on that rocket ship, and you were invited to have that open seat with the knowledge that if you took the ticket and you went on the Mars rocket ship, you knew that you had to live there for the rest of your life. Would you go? <laughs> so you'd probably have some qualifying questions. Who's going to be there? What's it going to be like? Will there be barbecue or other kinds of food or whatever? You'd probably have some questions that you'd want to know. But put those, all those questions aside and just go with me for a minute here. I, I do have a point. Okay. So imagine open seat to Mars, knowing you had to live there for the rest of your life. Would you go? But here's another qualifier. 
Would you go if you knew that the average life expectancy on Mars was three months? Then would you go? Would you make that your new permanent home if you knew that the, the, the air, the circumstances on Mars were as such that life expectancy was three months? Would you go? It changes things, right? What if it was three years? Then would you make it your permanent home? 30 years? It changes the question. And yet, the average life expectancy on Earth is somewhere between 60 to 80 years. The air we breathe, the conditions of our body, it's not sustainable to live past a certain time. And yet, we call it home. It's not our home. We try to maybe convince ourselves or, or comfort other people and singing the Lion King songs and saying it's the circle of life, it's just how things are, we end up in the dust and then the animals eat up. But we're not okay with that, are we? <laughs> it's not our home. It's not. Let's not miss the point of Easter. Jesus, the resurrected king, has conquered death and has brought life. Not temporary life, eternal life. He's preparing us a home, not a temporary home, an eternal one. The reason that our hearts long for something permanent and that we, we desire so badly for there to be something beyond just this life and the here and now, and there has to be something more to all of this, it's because there is. And Jesus shows us where life is found. It's found in him. And he's bringing life to this world one day forever when his kingdom comes. So before we jump into the text, I want to remind you of where we came from. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And a few weeks ago, we talked about why the world is in the condition that it is with sin leading to death. The reason that we die is because we sin. Mankind chooses sin that leads to death. But we don't just choose sin that causes us to die and ultimately be separated from God because of our sin. We're also enslaved to it. We can't help but choose it. Jesus said we love darkness more than light. We choose to sin. But at the same time, without being freed from it, without having God save us from it and change our hearts, we can't help but do that. Each and every one of us. Mankind chooses sin that leads to death. And so Jesus chose death, not because he had to, not because he sinned, but because in love he wanted to rescue us, to save us, to bring us back to God, to crush the works of the devil, to bring life on earth, not temporarily, but forever, that he would usher in the kingdom of God. He did that out of love, as the song we just sang, our sin held him there, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, and he died for our sins in order to give us the the, the gift of eternal life. Mankind chooses, chooses sin that leads to death. Jesus chose death to set us free and to bring salvation. And then last week we looked at that Saturday in between his death and his resurrection. That confusing day. That mournful day. That day in which most of the disciples thought that God's plans had failed. Living in a world that doesn't make sense. Often our experience not knowing why something happens, feeling like God is absent. But then Sunday happens. And God always knew Sunday was coming, and God was working the whole time, even when we felt like he wasn't, even when we feel like he doesn't, even when it doesn't make sense, even when there's mourning and grief and sadness and pain. God is at work. And Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. 
If the story ended with Jesus in the tomb, that's how mankind's story would end, in death. No hope for the future. Without the resurrection, we know life eventually ends, not just for us here, but life in general. Sun burns out, end of the story, no life, no future, no hope. But that's not how the story ends. He rose. And so, so will we. Okay, so let's get to the main idea for our passage today. We lined it up to make sure the resurrection happened on Resurrection Sunday. And so here we are, Matthew 28, verses 1 to 15. Here's the main idea. The Lord of life calls us to follow him in a world of lies. The Lord of life calls us to follow him in a world of lies. So we're going to talk about, first of all, the Lord of life in verses 1 to 6 of Matthew 28. And then the fact that he can be more than just the Lord of all of life, but the Lord of my life and your life individually. And then finally, he calls us to follow him in a world very much still filled with lies and deceit and counterfeits. Living a lie in verses 11 through 15. So first, the Lord of life. In verses 1 to 6, we see both looking for life, the search for life, but then God revealing to us where life is found. It's looking for life and then learning where life is actually found. Looking for life, we see it in verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Side note, free piece of advice here. If you have multiple friends with the same name, I don't recommend calling one of them the other. If you have a bunch of friends named Mark, come up with a nickname. You know, a bunch of friends named Kyle, come up with something for the other Kyles. Don't just call them the other Kyle, the other Mark. It can be offensive, not everybody likes that. However, getting back to the text. (laughs) Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We know these are women that were disciples of Jesus that were taught by him, that had followed him, that loved him, that understood he knew them more than anyone else ever had or ever could. They were there with Jesus when he was was tortured. They were there with Jesus during the trial, during the crucifixion. They were there at the tomb when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were burying the body of Jesus. And here they are again, Sunday morning, two days later, at the tomb to go and to mourn Jesus. They were looking for life. They didn't want to look anywhere else other than Jesus. They thought they found it in him. They worshiped him as the Messiah and they lingered and they lingered and they didn't want to let him go. And they didn't want to look for life in something or someone else. But they were heading to the tomb expecting to find a dead Jesus. But they didn't want to look anywhere else. Now I'm gonna pause for a second and ask you a question. That's a simple question, but it it truly is a profound question that you may not be able to answer all at once right now. And that is, in your life right now, honestly, where are you searching for life? Where are you looking? The longings that you have, where are you looking or to who are you looking? Is it to whom? Are you looking to satisfy that? Where are you searching? We all are. There's an article by the Gospel Coalition that says, how many times have I looked for life in places where only dead men live? I've peered into the tombs of fame and wealth, stepped into caverns where the powerful and popular preside, and carried my offerings to the pleasures of this world, 
looking for life. And then the whisper that cuts like a sword. Why are you looking for life here? Where are you looking? Don't tell me you're not looking. Everybody is. Everyone is looking for life. Everybody worships something or someone. I'm going to read to you another quote from David Foster Wallace. He was a best-selling author. He was an atheist, but he said this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's true. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Where are we looking for life? What are we worshiping? I need to hear and to be reminded of some of these quotes and truths that we're all worshiping and chasing after something just as much as any of you need to hear it. I've looked in the wrong places, in tombs where only dead bones live as well. And the temptation's always there and comes up again and again in life to offer you something. This is where life is found. If you just do this, if you just get this, if you just look this way, if you just get that job, it can go on and on and on and on and on. Then you'll find life. And it's all a lie. Where do we find life? I want to propose to us that if it's not God, whatever we think will give us the lasting life we're searching for, it won't. So where do we search? Where do we look? Where do we go? And the truth is, we can't find it on our own. We can't go to God on our own and find the truth by ourselves. We need God to do the change of our hearts. We need God to point us in the right direction. We need God to reveal to us what the truth is of where life is found. And you know he does. Where do we learn where life is found? Look at verses 2 to 6. And spoiler alert, where is life found? It's found in himself. It's found in Jesus, the resurrected king. Let's look at the resurrection in verses 2 to 6. Learning where life is found. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. So the women are on their way to the tomb, expecting to find a dead, a dead Messiah, to mourn him. They came with spices, it says in Mark 16, like I mentioned last week, probably to fix what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did wrong when they wrapped the body of Jesus and buried him. They knew there was going to be a stone, the large stone in the way. They didn't know how they would move it, but they went anyway. Nothing was going to stop them from going and being with Jesus and to, to give him a proper burial. They were on their way to the tomb. But God does what God does. He shatters their expectations. I love when God shatters my expectations. 
time and time again, I, I have this strange, untrue thought that I have an idea of what my future holds, and I don't. I have an idea of what the calendar of what things will be like in five years from now or whatever. I don't. God often shatters our expectations. They weren't expecting to find what they found. But God shook things up, sometimes literally, earthquake here. Two earthquakes. One earthquake when Jesus, the creator, died on the cross. The earth trembled when the king died. And now when King Jesus is raised from the dead, the earth shakes again, this time in exaltation for the risen king. Not just physical implications of this earthquake, cosmic ones. Something happened in the rising of King Jesus that was the turning point of all of history. And it's why mankind set their calendars based on when he came and when he left. God shook things up. First with the earthquake, then with an angel descending and rolling back the stone. Can we talk about this angel for a minute? His appearance was like lightning. I can't wait to see what these angelic beings look like that God has created. Can you? Appearance like lightning. Clothing white as snow. I have a, an idea that you cannot find the kind of clothing this angel was wearing in a shop today. And he was sitting on a large stone that was rolled away from the tomb. And that makes me wonder, and I never thought about this before, how big was this angel? To be able to sit on that large stone that was in front of the tomb. He sat on it triumphantly. He sat on it to defy hell or earth from ever trying to put the stone back. Jesus was never returning to the grave. Death has no hold on him. It couldn't hold him. How did the guards react? Like any group of anyone would, <laughs> they fell on their face paralyzed with fear. And these were trained guards. These were fierce guards. They wouldn't be moved or shaken by just anything or anyone. But they knew they were powerless against this angelic being. And they're afraid. And I wonder, as I read through that, if they're terrified of this one angel, I'm thinking of these guards and anybody else who, if they don't turn their life to Christ and turn to the Messiah and plead forgiveness for their sins and accept forgiveness and the free gift that Jesus did in raising from the dead, without forgiveness, without the cleansing of God offered through Christ, those guards, if they're fearful of that one angel, what is it going to be like on the last day, when not just that one angel, but the myriad, the innumerable heavenly host descends and God judges the world. It makes a little bit more sense when I read Revelation and it says that those during the second coming, when God comes to judge the world, many will cry out for the mountains to fall on them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. If this one angel strikes this much terror into these soldiers, what does the heavenly host what will God, the response that we have toward him if we haven't accepted the free gift of salvation and of cleansing and of forgiveness offered? The guards don't receive words of comfort at this time, but the women do. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. And then they're given the first proclamation of the resurrection to any human being when the angel says to them, he's not here, he is risen, come see the place where he lay. 
the first ones to receive the news that Christ had been risen from the grave. Quick side note, I know many of you have heard this before. Quick side note. Women at this time had zero credibility as eyewitnesses. So if Matthew wants to spread a story that he wants people to believe and that he wants to be circulated and held in high esteem, why would he say that women were the first eyewitnesses when they had no credibility as eyewitnesses during this time? Why? Because that's what happened. (laughs) Because he's recording the truth. Because God wanted to honor these women who lingered and who wanted to be with him. And they're given the first proclamation. He's no longer here. He is risen. And his rising from the tomb guarantees that one day all will rise from their tombs or graves or water or wherever they are when they died. It guarantees that the kingdom that he's been preaching about and revealing through his actions will one day, as he said, invade and take over this whole world. There's a Desiring article, Desiring God article, that says, the earthly realm and the heavenly will mingle. The new creation will brim with God, angels, and men. The empty tomb signals the nearness of the divine takeover. The decisive domino has fallen. This tidal wave of resurrection will wash over the graveyards and spill over all creation. The grass will sparkle green, the waters will run free, the oceans will pulse with life. All creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The knowledge of the glory of our master will cover the world as water covers the seas. His kingdom will come. The life that we see first in the, re- in the resurrected Christ will be given to all of his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Lord is showing where life is found. Where is it found? Where do we search for it? Where do we look? He says, look no further than my son. The resurrected King Jesus. The one who is bringing not a temporary life, an eternal one. Not a temporary home, an eternal one. The longing, what we're searching for, it's him. And he will bring it forever at his second coming. The angel tells the women, come and see where he lay. But the come and see quickly turns into the go and tell others. And that's where we get to the fact that he's the Lord, not just of all creation, not just the Lord of life, but he's the Lord of my life and of your life when we acknowledge the fact that he is our Lord and our Savior. These women listen to the instructions, to the commands given to them by a messenger of God, this angel, and they go and they eagerly share what they know. And on their way, they encounter Jesus. And we see that in verses 7 through 10. He's the Lord of my life. In verses 7 through 8, we see how they're eager to share. I'm going to remind you of those verses. Verses 7 through 8 says this. The angel says to them, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. They're eager to share. The angel tells them he's no longer here. Go and tell his disciples he's going to meet them in Galilee. Now it's interesting, Jesus had already told the disciples 
that he would meet them in Galilee after he was risen from the dead, before he was betrayed in Matthew 26. And they either forgot about it or couldn't believe something that good could happen after witnessing Friday, after knowing what happened to Jesus. How could something so good, how could he come back to life after what he went through, after what he experienced? And so they're not there. They're not waiting for him. Nobody was waiting for Jesus. But now the women hear this and they believe. They looked where he lay, but now they run out with excitement. It says, with fear and with great joy to go and share the news to his disciples. Sure, they were afraid. They were overwhelmed. They were expecting none of that. Simply overwhelmed. Fear of the unknown. What does this all mean? But they had great joy. Their joy outweighed their fear. And they were excited to go and to share the news. And as they run out, as they leave to go and to eagerly share the news of the resurrected Messiah, they encounter Jesus in verses 9 through 10. Let's look at those verses. This encounter with Jesus, verses 9 through 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus stops them on the way. You know, when the, when the Lord is the Lord of my life and of your life, we're going to have encounters with him on the way, on the journey, over and over. And as they're going to tell the disciples, Jesus meets them. And you know what he says? Hi. <laughs> Greetings. And what do they do? They worship him. They fall at his feet and they worship him. But Jesus doesn't explain right away everything that had just taken place in the previous two days. He doesn't try to answer all of their questions. He doesn't try to explain it all. He simply does what he, what he does time and time again with all of his people throughout all time. He lets himself be known. He reveals himself. And the disciples, the women, they respond. We respond to what God reveals. And they respond with worship and with obedience. We either respond to what God reveals to us in obedience and worship or in rejection and distance. But they respond in worship. And then they go and they tell, because Jesus, when he reveals himself, he allows us to respond, and then he sends us off to share the news with others, to be part of the great commission that he has, to share the news of the gospel, that Jesus, though he died, he lives again. He conquered sin and death. He sends them off. Did they understand every, everything about what had happened? No. Were all of their questions answered? No. But they go and they share what they had experienced. We don't have to know all of the answers to share about who Jesus is. We don't have to have everything figured out to tell people where the water is. You don't have to tell them the properties of water and how it works in every situation and all chemistry stuff. You can just tell them there's a well over there and there's water and it's good. Go to it. Check it out. Try it. And they go and they share about Jesus. And you know, as we pursue the Lord individually and as a church, we're going to encounter him again and again and again. And we're going to have the opportunity to respond to him, either in obedience and in worship or to reject him and disbelieve and then to reflect him to other people. We're going to encounter him as we serve together, each other, 
our community. We're going to encounter him as we dig into his word that he's revealed about himself, about this world, about us. We're going to encounter him as we pray together, as we talk to God, as we encourage each other, as we exhort each other when needed. We can encounter God better to get together. Part of the reason he established his body, the church, is to not do this thing, try to do it by ourselves, but to do it together. And you know what? He's still going to meet us in unexpected ways. He's still going to inspire both fear and great joy in us. He's still going to cause our feet to move. He's still going to calm our fears. And he's still going to call us to share who he is. Because he's still just as alive today as he was then. We encounter him together. When we submit our lives to the king, we have those opportunities throughout our life to respond, to encounter him and to respond together. He's the Lord of life, but he's not just the Lord of life in general. He can be the the Lord of your life, specifically, individually. And he calls us to follow him. But he calls us to follow him in a world that's not black and white. In a world that's not always clear about what you should do and where you should go. and In a world still filled with deceit and greed and lies. And we see it here right after the resurrection. Alternatives, deceit, Greed, all of it come up. We still live in a world of lies. Living a lie, verses 11 through 15. As the women are going and on their way to share the news about the resurrected Jesus simultaneously, this is happening. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, those Roman soldiers in front of the tomb, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So, what was the lie And why did they live the lie? What was the lie? The lie is the oldest lie as an alternative to the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's called the conspiracy theory. And we see it right here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, tell the guards that they are going to come up with this lie. If anyone asks you, tell them you were asleep and the disciples of Jesus came and stole his body. That's what happened. Tell that. And they gave him money to do so. And they said, look, if Pilate, your governor, I know he'll probably try to get you in big trouble and have you killed if he finds out, don't worry, we'll pay him too. We'll bribe him too. So we talked about this a little bit last week. Is that a likely compelling story to believe of what happened on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago? That the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. That's the theory. That's one of the lies. Believed then, still believed by some today. So if you believe that, here's what you have to believe. You have to believe that the disciples of Jesus, who all were hiding away in fear of the Jews, in fear of what would happen to them, were hiding away, had suddenly had the courage to come together and to put together a plan to steal the body of Jesus. Then you have to believe that they went to the tomb where there was a guard, and we we learned how that's likely dozens of Roman soldiers that are trained that in three-hour shifts make sure that the tomb 
It, no one comes and tries to steal the body. The stone was, was sealed in that they went in to make sure the body of Jesus was there and warned anyone from trying to steal him away. Likely also temple guards there as well. The, the disciples came when all of them somehow, all of them were asleep. And even if that happened, they somehow rolled the stone away without waking anybody up, not one of them, took the body and left without being seen during a time in Jerusalem where there's six times the normal population because of Passover, without anyone seeing it or reporting it or ever discovering the body. If you want to believe that, go for it. That's one of the theories. Something happened that Sunday morning. So how do we explain it? There's alternatives. There's lies that have been shared and spread to believe because you have to believe something. What's another alternative? It's called the resuscitation or the swoon theory. I'll explain this one real quick. In this theory, Jesus never died. He walked out of the tomb because he never died. So to believe this theory, here's what you have to believe. That even though Jesus was tortured, flogged, which many people will die from that alone. We watched The Passion of the Christ last night. Probably shouldn't have done that. Just great movie, but man. People die just from flogging. He went through the flogging. He went through the torture. He went through being beaten by a battalion of soldiers. He then had to carry his cross to Calvary, where he was crucified for six hours. He then was pronounced dead. And a guard, a Roman guard, made sure he was dead by stabbing him in the side. He was pronounced dead. Brought to a tomb. Wrapped, buried. Three days in the tomb. According to this theory, after three days of no food, no water, pronounced dead after all of that, somehow didn't just walk out of the tomb, but moved the stone himself and got past the guards. And that's what that theory believes. It doesn't seem to hold water either, does it? But let's just, for a minute, entertain the possibility that Jesus never died and walked out of the tomb. Do you think his disciples would respond in such a way as to celebrate, you're the one who conquered death? You did it? You're the Lord of life when he's mostly dead in front of them? Probably not. This was not a Princess Bride situation where Wesley, the main character, was brought by two of his friends to Miracle Max. Remember Miracle Max? And he was told by Miracle Max, don't worry, he's not, he's not fully dead. He's only mostly dead. And when you're mostly dead, that means you're still slightly alive. That wasn't what happened to Jesus. And Miracle Max said, by the way, he said, there's only one thing left to do when someone's fully dead, and that's check their pockets for loose change. And that, that idea, that principle may be true until Jesus broke it. Until Jesus, who was not mostly dead or partly dead, but fully dead in the tomb for three days, came back to life. And because he did so, again, we know the other promises that all will rise and that he will one day return fully with his kingdom will come true. So, why do so many people believe the lies? Well, I think Mark Twain had an idea when he said, a lie can go around the world while the truth is still lacing up her boots. I learned from a documentary called The Social Dilemma that fake news lies spread six times faster than the truth. Isn't that just frustrating? But that's the world we live in. A world full of lies and deceit and all of that counterfeit plans, counterfeit gods, counterfeit, counterfeit. So you may stop me and ask, and I know in our you know, Northeast culture, 
intellectual reasons are going to tend to be something more that we jump at and might be more of a stumbling block for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to, I'm going to mention this for a minute. You may say, okay, so it doesn't seem like there's compelling reasons to believe in the alternatives, but is there compelling reasons to believe in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus? Are there facts about that? And the answer to that question is yes. When you look into any historical event, you want to know a number of factors. Let's briefly mention some of those. Were there eyewitnesses? Were there eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Yes. 1 Corinthians 15 says in one, there were over 500 in one day. Plenty of eyewitness testimonies. What about early dating? When did they write about it? When did they record their eyewitness testimonies? Was it centuries later when they had died out and other people talked about it? Or did the people who witnessed it themselves write it and record it? Yeah, early dating. Those in the New Testament, each of those books are written by people that either were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus or talked with eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus in their lifetime. 1 Corinthians 15 with the 500 eyewitnesses was written within 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Eyewitness testimony, early dating. I'm going to give you a couple other things just because I want to. The disciples, what changed that morning to make them go from hiding away and afraid and fearful of the Jews to suddenly now proclaiming loudly and boldly to the point of all of them dying for their faith except for John that Jesus had been raised from the dead. If they came, if they came up with that lie, they would have died knowing that they were dying for a lie. You might say plenty of people die for a lie. Millions of people have died in belief of their god or goddess doing something, they whatever. But they would have knowingly died for a lie. They would have been the ones to create it. On top of that, how do you explain the change in fundamental Jewish belief by thousands of people after that Sunday? None of the Jewish people believed there'd be one resurrection in the middle of history. They either believed there was one at the end of history or there's none. They weren't teaching there's one in the middle of history. And now thousands upon thousands of Jewish people believe that and are spreading that news. What happened to change their belief? On top of that, none of them taught that the Messiah would also be God, the God-man. And after the resurrection of Jesus, after that Sunday, after something happened, you have thousands and thousands of Jewish people believing the Messiah was God. What changed? What happened? And one other thing. <laughs> What's the incentive? Because in the Roman Empire, where they're spreading this news throughout it, Look at the history of what happens to Christians in the Roman Empire. It's dangerous. Many of them die for their faith. What's the incentive? It wasn't until centuries later under Constantine that there was any worldly incentive to be a Christian. So why are they doing it unless they really believed that that's what happened? Why did Saul of Tarsus, with his privilege and status as a Pharisee, give all of that away to believe in the Messiah that he was killing other people for believing in? What changed? What happened? If they didn't see and encounter the risen Lord Jesus. So, is there compelling evidence to believe in the historical event of the resurrection? Yes. But at the same time, we know that just knowing facts is not what makes someone a Christ follower. Building up evidence and creating a case is not what makes someone truly a born-again believer in Jesus. You see, the guards, the religious leaders, they weren't doubting the angel rolled away the stone and that Jesus was gone. 
and alive. They didn't doubt that, but did they turn and submit their lives to Jesus? No, they didn't. Why? Because they were searching for life in other places. Because their hearts hadn't changed. The guards accepted the money. They accepted the bribe. The religious leaders wanted to keep their power, maintain the status that happened. They didn't want other people believing in Jesus, even if he had risen from the grave. It shows that when they're taunting him when Jesus was on the cross and they said, get down from there and then we'll believe, that was a lie too. It's not enough just to see with your eyes or to to believe certain facts. It's a much greater problem than that. There's false gods that we run after. Do you need convincing? Do you really need convincing today that money and power are motivations and incentives for living in a way that's counter to the truth or, or, or doing the right thing or believing the right thing? Do you really need like an argument about that? How many businesses care more about their bottom line than the health of their employees, than the future of their children, than actually the welfare of society? Money, money, money. One of the many false gods. But a false god that offers part of what the original lie of the serpent offered was you can be your own god. You can have what you want when you want it and you can be in charge of your life. You can be your own master. And they took it. We're all looking for life somewhere. We all want life. But we need more than facts. Jesus didn't come with a list of facts saying just believe this. He came as a person. Lived among us. Lived the perfect life that we could never live and died in our place to change us and to bring us back to himself. He came himself. So let's not overcomplicate what Easter is all about. There was one who conquered death and has brought life. Not temporary, eternal. Who is creating home. Not a temporary one, an eternal one. Who is going to usher in his kingdom forever. There's one person that said he would walk out of his tomb and then did and then stayed out. Why would I want to go to anyone or anything else to learn about what my life's supposed to be about? Or to learn about the afterlife and how to be prepared for the afterlife? Why turn, why believe, why go to anything or anyone else? If you sense today that God, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the 20th time in your life, that there's this nudge that God is calling you to submit your life to him, to give your life to Jesus, to confess that you need him, I hope that you do that today. I hope you don't leave without talking, without praying with somebody and submitting your life to the king. He is the one that provides life, true life, lasting life. It's in him. If you're wondering, what do I have to do? What does this resurrected king want from me? I want to dispel some lies you might believe about Jesus. One of which is, do you think that he's on top of a ladder, even a pretty one like these? shouting down at you to try harder, do more, work harder, do. He's not. He shouted from the cross, done. Done. It's finished. The work that you need to do in order to be saved was accomplished not by yourself, but by him and him alone. And he calls you to simply believe. Believe in him. Praise him, the one who brings life hope and a future and a home. I think it's fitting to end with a quote from 
uh, Brandon Lake, he's a Christian songwriter, and he says this, I know it's not much, but I have nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing hallelujah. Praise God, he's alive. Let's pray. Lord, we're searching for life, all of us. And God, we confess again, we look in the wrong places. We'll take good gifts from you and turn them into small gods. Turn them into where we're hoping life will be found and devoting ourselves and our desires and all of that to to those counterfeit gods. Lord, you know what they are. Lord, you know where we're tempted to turn rather than you. And I pray, Lord, that your resurrection, your life, the hope that we have in eternity, in the home that you're bringing and the life to come is made more real as we heard your word, as we heard what you did, as you call us to to give up on ourselves and our own pursuit of trying to rescue ourselves and find meaning by ourselves and to turn to you the one that gives life and gives it freely. Thank you for the free gift that you paid for and that you give and by showing us that it's true and it's real when you were risen from the tomb like you said you would. Help us, God, to believe and with joy and knowing that we don't need to know all the answers to go and to share that news as we continue, Lord, to encounter you together as a body of Christ, to learn from you, to be changed by you, and to be sent out into this world that you've made to others who also need to hear where life is found, where the well is, where the water is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.